Hello and welcome to EPR, your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I discuss decision fatigue. We talk to Vina Singla about plastics, GHGs, and networking. And finally, remember how we talked about crabs last episode and I mentioned the Japanese spider crab? You guys remember that? Yes, yeah, so it really is the stuff of nightmares and has a really unique way of camouflaging itself where they will literally tear off sponges and worms off of the ocean substrate secrete adhesive on them and then stick them onto their bodies. Uh, the animals <laughs> somehow recover from this trauma <laughs> and then start growing on them. Oh, I, I genuinely do not know what to say next. <laughs> so, that is haunting. Very glad that they're not on land. I don't think I can handle that. So <laughs> crabs are pretty special. Yeah. They are something else. Uh, hit that music. <laughs> We are working with Sierra Talaferro over at the Green Obsidian to highlight a few of the individuals that she is highlighting for our Black History Month. Today, we want to introduce you to Dr. Keenan Adams. He serves as the forest supervisor for El Yunque National Forest in Puerto Rico, where he oversees the U.S. Forest Service only tropical forest that spans across 29,000 acres. His work encompasses engaging the local community, protection of tropical flora and fauna, in addition to incorporating scientific research through his publications on a variety of fronts. From remote sensing of natural disaster recovery to watershed models, the wildlife management and restoration that brings awareness of the unique landscape and ecology of the forest. Don't forget to check out Sierra at Green Obsidian on Facebook or LinkedIn. 30 second sponsor spotlight, fake Rooney. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay, here we go. Laura, I know you, you're going to think I make up all these things. All the products that I've talked about are real, especially this one, though, because this is, a, this is a, a, a fancy thing. It's wonderful. I know you've always thought, what if I could shoot a fish out of a cannon? Um, and guess what you can with salmon cannon? That's exactly right. You could take a fish from one side of a lake and just poof, right over the other. You know, I mean, like, you know, dams be damned. You know, this thing will shoot salmon from one side of a, <laughs> of a dam to the other. And guess what? It's actually, no, this one is real. I swear to God, it's real. Uh, we just watched a video about it. It's, it's a real thing. You guys should check it out uh, salmon cannon get it today <laughs> nice well, it's so cool on there, but i love it yeah and everyone does need to go check that out because it's wild <laughs> yeah awesome let's get to our segment i keep having these dr- i don't have you guys watched the good place either of you oh yeah 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 of course yeah. i love it yeah i keep having these cheaty dreams i can't make a decision <laughs> <laughs> I had one, me and my mom were looking at milkshakes and I couldn't decide what I wanted in it because it was like you could pick any of the topping stuff and mm-hmm. I couldn't I couldn't decide and I was literally like having a cheaty dilemma. And That's then so uh, I, the last like two nights has been, I can't remember the exact details, but same thing. Like I could not decide like which direction to go or something like. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I know. Oh, I totally get that. I totally get it. Um, it's, it's like, I almost feel like I have like a, a decision quota for the day where it's like, okay, when I'm at work, I have to make a lot of decisions really quickly, really fast. And then, and then there's a point where I, I'm done and I cannot make another. And like, so I'll be like making dinner and it's like, well, what do I want? And then four hours later, it's like, I guess I'll just go to the closest one and eat that. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. like desperation, you know? 
That's funny. Yeah. Decision fatigue. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I think you're right. By the time dinner rolls around last night, my boyfriend and his dad were like, we're going to go out for dinner. Where do you want to go? And I was like, I literally don't care. And then we got there and yeah. my boyfriend's like, what are you getting? And I was like, uh, let me just flip a coin. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> What's the first entree? I'll do that. I literally just went with the cheapest thing on the menu. Grilled cheese. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, that's an easy way to figure it out. Right. So, and I guess yeah. that's what it comes down to is like some sort of system I've been using for dinner, like the Sheldon system where like Monday is burger night, Wednesday is pizza <laughs> night, Thursday is Asian. <laughs> well, like, so, so people with ADD, ADHD, you know, uh, which, which I have, you know, I think I've talked about it a little bit on the show, but like decision fatigue is a real thing. It is scary. It's hard. And there's things you can do to like alleviate some of that. And some of it, like exactly that, what you just said is a great example of that. It's like, I know it sounds silly, but I'm going to wear XYZ today. Because yeah. and every day, every Monday, because it's just what I need to do, right? Or like you, you set up your clothes so that you you have a, a system for the week, and you just go pick up a shirt, pick up a shirt, pick up a shirt. It's right. much easier to do that one time than trying to do it all every single day. And uh, yeah, that's a really good idea. I mean, same thing with dinner. I mean, it sounds silly, but it's it's like a need order. Otherwise, there's chaos. It is. It's so helpful because then I'm like, what do I need to buy at the grocery store? There's no like deciding. I go, okay, I need everything for burgers. I need everything for pizza. Right. I need everything for an Asian salad. Like that's what I'm making. And then when the day comes and I'm like, what are we having for dinner? I just look at the board. <laughs> What's yeah. today? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, you know, dinner. It doesn't have to be, it can be lots of different things, but like, yeah, even just doing that for one thing is kind of healthy and, you know, it doesn't mean you can't break the mold sometimes, yeah. but you know. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I got rid of all of my brown coordinated clothes. That is so, it'll, <laughs> so I'd watched this video about a woman who lived in a tiny house. So she was minimalizing. Mm-hmm. And so she just only had stuff that coordinated with black. So then because otherwise, if you wear brown coordinated clothes and black coordinated clothes, then you need brown belts and brown shoes. Yes. Earth mm-hmm. tone clothing like I only, and it helps me when I'm shopping. So decisions, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I see a brown shirt, sweater that I like. I'm like, nope, <laughs> I'm buying a black one. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I do it so, I do it by weeks. Yeah. So that's what I would do is like, I'll have like, okay, this is black, black belt week. And then there's brown belt week. And it's like, yeah, it's just like anything I had accordance with these, these shoes and this belt. That's what I have. And yeah, yeah, I do the same kind of thing, really. Yeah. I don't have less clothes. I didn't go to like minimalist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, style yeah. or at least i did maybe for a minute and then built it back up but <laughs> I mean, everything i do have coordinates with black somehow uh, I, mean, I think i have one brown shirt that i just loved and i still kept right that doesn't go with anything you have <laughs> yes <laughs> you just look at it and you admire it yeah i got you yeah i've also got like uh you know like the I, I really need to go through my closet and get out take out stuff i mean Speaking of decisions, like, do I want to keep this thing I've only worn once in four years? Ugh. And it's like, but well, I mean, you know, and that's where my brain goes. It's just, it's like, it's trying so hard to take the other side of any argument where it's like, okay, I need to get rid of this. I haven't worn it. But, but remember when you got it though, it wasn't that so much fun. And didn't you enjoy it then? And you're like, see, I don't even, my speak comes from the clothing. Don't throw me away. Please wear me again. <laughs> like, <laughs> Don't you remember how much fun we used to have together? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Mine's like, oh, I feel sorry for throwing you in the garbage. I don't yeah. know. 
or giving you away or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, wow, that is really hurtful for that poor piece. (laughs) Well, I and okay, so decisions. I have a pair of jeans that are so worn thin; they've got holes Mm -hmm. everywhere, and I was going to. I had one for fifty seconds, thirty seconds. I was going to throw them in the garbage, and then I was like. No, don't throw me in the garbage. And so I put him in a bag <laughs> and I just left him there. Just in a bag in your Because then I'm like, <laughs> no, because they were like, take me to Goodwill or maybe someone will recycle me. And I'm like, yeah. but you're tatters. But um, no, I could be something. And I'm like, you no, you're tatters. Mm-hmm. And so now they're just in limbo. <laughs> so funny. Like I always try to do the thing where I'm like, well, it's work clothes, right? It's work. I could just yeah. you know pretend like it's it's for like when I work in the yard. And stuff, right? And you know, and then our brain's like, um, "You have like eight pairs of those, so get rid of some of them." <laughs> you know, oh, it's bad, bad. Yeah, good times making decisions. Yeah, I think it's a wrap, though. Let's uh, <laughs> let's get to the interview. Welcome back to EPR. Today we have Bina Singla, senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council, which you may know as the NRDC, on our show. Welcome, Dina. Thank you, Laura. It's great to be here. Awesome. Nick sends his regards. He's traveling today, so it will just be me interviewing solo. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about the mission of NRDC? The Natural Resources Defense Council, or NRDC, we're an international environmental nonprofit that employs scientists like myself, lawyers, and policy advocates to advance evidence-based policies to protect human health and the environment. And we have a staff of about 700 and offices across the U.S., as well as in India and in Beijing, China. And our headquarters are in New York City. I'm based in beautiful San Francisco, California. Awesome. I didn't realize it was that large of an organization. We're known as one of the big greens. Cool. And that would be along with who are some of the other ones? Sierra Club, Earth Justice. Those are some of the big environmental organizations uh, nationally in the U.S. Fantastic. So tell us about your role there and how it fits kind of into the bigger picture. Yes. So NRDC, we work on a whole range of environmental issues from climate change to wildlife to protecting the environment for people's health, which is what I focus on. And I work on environmental health. That's how the environment affects people's health. Thinking about harmful environmental exposures like air pollution, contaminated drinking water, pesticides in food, the whole range of harmful things in our environment that we can breathe, eat, drink, and absorb that can harm our health. And trying to bring the best science and data to inform policies to help make more protective common sense regulations to improve the environment and help improve people's health, especially for communities who are most impacted by environmental pollution. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And when you talk about the areas that are in most of need, is there a process or how do they go about targeting like the areas where they do work? Do you know? Yes. So we really um, think about communities that are burdened by multiple sources of environmental pollution, where there may be a concentration of industrial facilities that release a lot of pollution together, as well as a confluence of 
other polluting sources like highways, ports, that kind of infrastructure. And what we see across the U.S. is a pattern where these um, multiple sources of pollution are concentrated in communities that are disproportionately people of color or low income or both often. And this is what we call environmental injustice, where some communities are more burdened by these multiple sources of pollution and it raises health risks for these communities, their families, their children. And this is a major focus of my research and our advocacy to try to transform our systems and relieve some of these unjust burdens, which will benefit communities' health and everyone's health. Awesome. That's a really great mission. Can you talk a little bit more? You mentioned research and I'm curious about so the 700 employees around kind of around the world and you work remotely. How much time do you spend just doing research versus on site versus kind of like doing hands-on type of work in the community? Yes. I'll say it looks pretty different <laughs> since since the pandemic than than it did pre-pandemic although it, we're slowly coming back to traveling more and being able to interact in person with communities and and decision makers I'd say it's a pretty good mix of those activities, which is something I really like about my job that it's very dynamic because I'll spend part of the day very independently on my own, reading scientific papers, looking at data, doing analysis, maybe writing a fact sheet, that type of work. And another part of my day meeting with our kind of key stakeholders, whether that's other NGOs, policymakers, decision makers, communities, and policy work is very collaborative. That's something I I like and enjoy about it. No one organization will get a policy passed on its own. So it's by its nature collaborative. And I like that process of really coming together and building consensus around what the science says, how we can translate that into better policies and then working to make that happen. And Part of that process is interacting directly with decision makers, you know, with community groups and being in person does help facilitate that. I think we've all learned in the past few years, even being on video, being on Zoom, there's still something missing that you get with that in-person interaction, a, a little bit more of the personal touch. And I'm thinking about it a lot. I was just in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana for an event there and being able to meet directly with the community groups on the ground and hear their stories. They're on the front lines of climate change and impacts from the oil and gas industry there on, on the Gulf Coast. You don't really get that if you're not in person. So I appreciate now that we're able to travel a little bit more and be in person and see there's no substitute for seeing it with your own eyes, I have to say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I think, you know, we have a lot of young people who listen to the show and students. And so giving them an idea of like what a day at work looks like is really helpful. You know, on a job description, it's really hard to tell what would it, 
what is my day going to look like when I'm actually doing the work, which I want to jump into your projects. But before we do, I also want to continue down that path a little bit about, you know, is this, you mentioned you, you really enjoy doing this in the policy work, but is this really what you thought you would be doing kind of when you started your career path or when you start getting interested in saying, hmm, this is something I could go to school for and kind of what shaped where you got where you are now? That's a great question, Laura. And I have to say, I did not think this is where I would end up. If you had asked me this in undergraduate or grad school, I would have no idea that I ended up in a role like this. My path to get here was kind of a long and winding road. And in hindsight, I was always very impatient, right? That I I wanted to kind of go figure out more quickly and with more certainty where my career was going, where I should land. And that I know now it was that experience of going through that process, trying those different things that was really essential to me figuring out what's the right career fit for me. So my background is in chemistry and biology. I did my undergraduate degree in chemistry and went to graduate school for cellular and developmental biology. I always loved science. The research experiences I had in undergrad and after undergrad, I worked at a biotech company for a couple of years working in the lab, doing molecular biology and cell biology research for the company. And I really enjoyed it and honestly didn't give much more thought to it besides I love science. I like doing research. And if I want to continue down the road of being a scientist, people were telling me, well, you need to get a graduate degree. So I went to get my my PhD. And partway through that program, I just realized I didn't want to be a professor and con- continue to stay in academia and work in the lab. There was a few pieces missing in, in that I mentioned before, I really enjoy kind of the collaborative process and working with a team. And a lot of science is very individual and independent. You you could spend a whole day and not talk to anyone. I did sometimes, right? Sit like just working at my lab bench or sitting in the cell culture room. And the times that we did have collaborations with other lab groups or other universities, I really enjoyed that process. So it kind of made me realize I wanted more of that kind of day-to-day interaction and in my job. So that was a missing piece. And also being able to see a more tangible impact from the work that I was doing. Basic science, fundamental science is so important. It's the foundation on which so much of our technology and medicine is built, but it can be many, many years from discoveries in basic science to that being translated into something more tangible in the real world. And I think that was something that was also a little bit missing for me, that it was important to me to be able to see more immediately how the work that I was doing was showing up in the world and can really putting the science more into action and trying to contribute to changes in these important issues that are, that are affecting our lives and our health. And that's what 
led me to start looking more at roles that combined kind of science and communication. And I'd always been interested in policy, but had never had much experience with it. And my first role that was working in science and policy was a small nonprofit in Berkeley, California called the Green Science Policy Institute. And I found that job on Craigslist. It was, <laughs> it was very serendipitous. And I always, I tell people the general advice is networking is so important. And that is true. It's always true. Like that's going to be very beneficial to your career. And you never know where your next opportunity is going to come from. So keep yourself open to possibility because I saw this job on Craigslist. I did not know anything about this organization or the executive director. I read about the work that they did and it sounded very aligned with my interests and what I wanted to do, but I had no connection to it. I just applied through Craigslist, ended up getting the job and starting that work. I I did a lot of on-the-job learning about policy that wasn't in my training and I just loved it. It really hit the pieces that have been missing for me being a lab researcher in, in academic science. And that set me on the path to the, the work I'm doing now from that small nonprofit. I came to NRDC and have continued to do this work in environmental health. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, a lot of people, I do career coaching for environmental career seekers. And a lot of people come to me saying, here's my skills. What should I do? And I was like, well, give me some suggestions, but really the real life answer is just what you said. You've got to go out and start exploring and figure out what you like. I might say, I think this is great for you, but you actually go do it. And you're like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> yes. I think that's exactly right. Cause I did a few internships and volunteer opportunities in different areas like science journalism and science education and in a museum to see if that might be a good fit for me. And it wasn't. And I think that information is just as valuable as knowing what you like to do to be able to say, well, actually, I, I thought this would be a really great road for me. And it turns out not so much. Yeah, totally. Speaking of networking and the importance of it. So now that you kind of have your career and I'd, I'd imagine you're looking to stay there for a while, just making an assumption, but do you still find that you're making networking a priority and trying to maintain some of those things that I, I think from my observation from being a member of NAP, people fall back on networking like real hard when they're looking and then they kind of let it slip a little bit while when they're cushy in their jobs? Yes. For me, networking and building relationships remains important, both in, in thinking about my continued professional development, you know, career opportunities and growth, and for mentorship too. Because even if you're in a role and job that you feel very happy with and aren't necessarily looking, there's always challenges. There's always difficulties that arise. And it's really helpful to have folks you can go to, especially sometimes outside your own organization and company that can help you the help be that thought partner, help provide that mentorship that may have more experience in a certain area or navigating certain kinds of difficulties. I've found that to be a important resource 
in my career to have these mentors that I can have a phone call with, or if you're lucky to be in the same location, meet up for coffee or lunch and just talk things out and have a kind of outside perspective and opinion and help just guide and coach you through whatever challenges arise in the course of your work, because those will always come up. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Uh, You never know when you'll be the host of a podcast and need to invite guests every single week. You're like, oh, (laughs) I need people with networks. (laughs) I'll be pinging you later to see who else you know, just letting you know. Um, You're you're putting it into practice right away. (laughs) Um, Okay, let's jump back to your projects because I know you're working on some pretty cool ones. And you know, what's one that you're just most excited about right now or that's just taking up most of your time? There is a big issue I'm working on that's going to be familiar to a lot of your listeners, I think, Laura, and that's the problem of plastics and the plastic waste, plastic pollution, and the whole plastic life cycle from production to use to disposal. We have too much plastic. I think that's not going to be news to anyone. And how can we address this systemic problem and really think about solutions that are going to help us fix the issues across the whole life cycle? Because the waste, plastic waste at the end of life is very visible to us. And there's many more impacts from plastic and plastic pollution than just the waste at the production stage, plastics are made from fossil fuels and it's a very energy intensive and polluting process. And the plastic components, there are these tiny little pellets called nurdles. And that's the kind of initial stage for plastic products. Those plastic nurdles are also very polluting. They're found littered across the oceans, beaches, the globe. You find them everywhere. And the communities that are near that those plastic production facilities bear the brunt of a lot of that pollution and toxic emissions that that impacts their health. I'm really thinking about how we can have transformative solutions that are going to address the issues across the plastic life cycle. And one that is very simple in concept, yet quite challenging to put into practice is make less plastic. If you want, if you have a waste problem, don't make the waste and that solves the problem. That's the top of the materials management hierarchy, right? Prevention. So there's a lot of single use plastics that are just unnecessary. They get used for a few minutes, maybe 30 seconds, and then just and thrown away. So trying to target these unnecessary and problematic single-use plastics that do make up a large portion of our plastic production and waste, that's one. And then where we need materials to fulfill these important functions and roles in our life, how can we go to reuse and, and refill systems? I think Again, a lot of your listeners are going to be familiar with carry your own water bottle. So you don't have to buy these single-use plastic water bottles and putting in the infrastructure 
across our cities, across the places where we travel, work, you know, live and learn that where we can fill up our water bottles, where we can easily use reusable utensils and food service, where there's a really great effort to bring dishwashers back to schools. I'm old enough to remember in my elementary school when there was physical trays where we got our food and returned and then got washed in the school cafeteria. A lot of that infrastructure was taken out or not put in. I don't have kids, so I don't know anything about this. (laughs) No, no. Most schools do not have dishwashers. They were either to remove, taken out or not put in when schools were built. And it's all throwaway food service wear. So teaching kids to just throw stuff away, right? Exactly. Exactly. So sometimes we had it right the first time. (laughs) I'd say there's a great example to, to go back to the, that kind of reuse system in schools and, and other institutions. It's a huge use of single use plastics from the plates to the cutlery, to the cups, all across that whole system. So the reuse and refills are a really important solution. And then also improving our materials management, the recycling problem, where a lot of the plastic materials we make simply are not practically recyclable. And we need to cut down on the variety and complexity of the plastic materials we're making and focus on the ones that we know we can recycle. And that will help with the management at an end of life very significantly as well. So we're thinking about policies to advance these kinds of solutions at the local, state, and federal level in in the U.S., At the federal level, there's the Break Free from Plastics Pollution Act, which helps to support a number of the solutions that I mentioned. And internationally, it's really exciting. There's a a in-progress negotiations are underway for a, a global plastics treaty with the UN, with the United Nations. So that started last year, and they have a very ambitious goal to have the treaty complete in just a couple years. So we've been participating in those negotiations and providing information about what we see as the best solutions. That's a huge undertaking, <laughs> but I'm glad that you know that you are doing that. So in looking at how the projects are gone through the Natural Resource Defense Council, are you looking mostly at the policy side or do you do actual in the community work, educating schools and, and really getting to like the end user as well? Or is it mostly on like high level and then that trickles down to other groups who are actually boots on the ground doing stuff? I'd say it's more the former. We are, so we call ourselves grass tops, right? That we work at this kind of mid-level between community-based groups and like the policymakers. So we serve as kind of that bridge. I think it's really important that we're working in close collaboration with our partners on the ground to ensure that our policy advocacy reflects the solutions that are going to work for communities and also to bring 
communities directly to the table in these discussions, in these negotiations, because they've been marginalized and excluded historically and currently for far too long in these decisions that impact them and their communities. So we try to both improve these public participation processes that we're engaged with and develop these more holistic, comprehensive solutions that are going to deliver benefits for impacted communities. Awesome. You're also working on some GHG projects. And uh, before we get too deep into it, as I said, some of our listeners may not be very advanced in their careers and not really know what GHG even is, or what are some of the specific ones that you'd be would identify as a GHG. So could you kind of do a high level? This is what greenhouse gases are. And here's a few that we look at and then maybe dive into the more of the specifics of your project. Sure. Yes. So GHG stands for greenhouse gas. And these are the emissions we're concerned about that drive climate change. There's a variety people might be familiar with, like carbon dioxide and methane, which is also known as natural gas or fossil gas. There's also other greenhouse gases that people might not be as as familiar with that are this whole class of chemicals called fluorinated chemicals or HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, also sometimes called forever chemicals or PFAS, per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. There's a whole variety of chemicals in those groups that are super potent global warming gases where compared to carbon dioxide, they might have 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times the, the global warming potential. So they're kind of known as the, the super GHGs or super climate pollutants. So we're concerned about that whole range of of GHGs and trying to reduce those emissions and ensure that we're building our way to a a cleaner, as much of a climate stable and safe future as, as we can. And One aspect that I focus on is our buildings, our homes, our built environment. And globally, buildings account for about 30 to 40% of our, our total GHG emissions. So they're a significant source. And if, and depending on where you are, it can be even more significant. So New York City, for example, buildings account for 70% of that city's GHG emissions. It's a huge chunk and it makes sense. So you think about New York City, it's very dense. There's lots of people, there are lots of buildings. And we burn a lot of fossil fuels in our buildings. People don't this is not the first thing that comes to mind <laughs> when you think about sources of um, GHG emissions where we're burning fossil fuels, but to heat our water, to heat our homes, to dry our clothes, to cook. These are all ways that we're burning fossil fuels in in our homes. And to, to reduce the significant source of GHG emissions, we need to move away from burning fossil fuels in our buildings and electrify these appliances. And the great news is we have the technology that we need to do that now. There's appliances called heat pumps that can heat our water, can 
heat our spaces. They're much more efficient than the combustion versions. And for the heating purpose, there's another huge added benefit is that heat pumps provide both heating and cooling. So for folks that maybe didn't have an air conditioner before, or maybe had a very inefficient one or like a window unit. If you put in a heat pump, now you have very efficient heating and cooling. And both of these are going to be increasingly important for people as unfortunately we've seen more and more extreme weather events, extreme heat, extreme cold. That's really intensified by climate change. So moving towards these electrified appliances and electrifying our buildings is going to be a great way to address building GHG emissions and at the same time provide benefits to people in their homes. I already mentioned adding the cooling and also it makes the air healthier because you're not releasing those combustion-related pollutants, you know, to the outdoor air or inside when you cook with gas. And we focus on the affordable housing sector to ensure that the benefits of our investments, our programs, our, our policies are going to reach that sector and ensure that people who live in affordable housing, people who own affordable housing or provide affordable housing will have the support they need to be a part of this transition, take advantage of it and make their buildings, you know, more efficient, climate-friendly and healthier. Awesome. Yeah, we keep hearing more and more about heat pumps and so that's interesting to hear that that's coming around and I think you know, there's a few things like AI and different stuff that are creeping into our lives and the heat pumps are one of them too. But let's switch into our field notes segment. So this is the part of the show where we talk about memorable moments doing work in the field. And that may be actually boots on the ground in the forest or wetland, or it might be in an office. But we encourage our listeners to share their stories using using the hashtag field notes so we can read them on future episodes once we start collecting those. So Vina, in your several years of work and experience and different things, like give us a story about a time where something was certainly memorable or interesting while you've been out on the field. This, I love this. I love this segment. What what a fun idea. <laughs> something that's very memorable to me. It's not necessarily positive, but I certainly remember it is well, so I mentioned a lot of my work intersects with the fossil fuel and, and chemical industry, like the work on plastics. Plastics are made from fossil fuels. Fossil fuel companies make plastics. So some of the biggest plastic makers are like Exxon, Shell, BP. These are names familiar probably to many listeners. And the chemical industry is very closely connected. So these are the same companies that are petrochemical and plastics manufacturers. These companies don't agree with the the solutions we're proposing because it will directly affect their profits. Yeah. I think that's there's that's a very clear way to to say it because we're suggesting cutting our production of of plastics for example. So one 
scientific conference I was speaking at, I was presenting at, there was a chemical industry representative who was not in favor of what I was presenting and kept coming up in the Q&A session to just ask kind of repeated aggressive questions. And the the whole room was getting pretty uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for me. It was not scientific conversation. It felt very aggressive and inappropriate, honestly. And every time he did, he he would call me Miss Singla, Miss Singla. It was, it felt disrespectful, especially in a scientific setting when I have a PhD. And let me tell you, I labored seven hard years, blood, sweat, and tears to get that degree. So I got very frustrated with this. And finally, at one point I said, excuse me, you can call me Dr. Singla. And that really shut him up. Honestly, it was... um, (laughs) It was pretty funny. A lot of people remember that. I've had people comment to me years later that they're just like, oh, I remember that session. So <laughs> I always joke. I I don't ask anyone to call me doctor. I don't use that honorific. I say, except the chemical industry. Right. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's a great story. I love I love this segment too, because you know this is something that connects us as environmental professionals. We all have to interact with the public usually in some way. And if it's not the public, it's wildlife. Like we have yes. experiences that can put us in very uncomfortable situations. And I love sharing them because we've all had them and they don't need to be like something you're embarrassed of or whatever, you know, they can be funny. Even if it's like, oh, that was uncomfortable. Like, yeah, a couple of years later, it can be funny or whatever. Yes. You know? I, do, I do look back at it and laugh for yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for sharing that. We're getting close to the end of our time. So I just want to touch on one more thing. Because you are also doing adjunct professing at Columbia University. So what program do you teach? Oh, yes. Thank you so much for this question. This is something else I'm just so excited about. This program at Columbia is called the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice. And it was founded by Dr. Amizoda, who's a a professor there at at the Millman School of Public Health. And I'm part of the leadership team for the program. And what it is, it's a about a year-long fellowship program where we're the fellows are folks who are who have been historically underrepresented in science in the environmental health sciences. And the goal of the fellowship is to really elevate these voices, provide training and professional development opportunities, and have these fellows really be thought leaders in this space. So what part of my role is to help provide some of the science and policy training and experience. And we've been working with the fellows this year to do a community science collaboration, which is is very cool. The fellows are working in small groups directly with external organizations to provide scientific and technical support for the group's priorities. So it's a opportunity and experience for the fellows to see what it's like to really have your science serve the community's needs and help to make, again, put that science into action to make the change that's directly going to benefit communities. That sounds really cool. 
And for people, again, who are listening, who may be thinking like, I'd like to be an adjunct professor. Like, did you apply for that job? Did someone approach you or did you see the program someone you're like, I want to be involved? Yes. So this goes back to a theme we touched on earlier, networking. And I thought it might, I didn't want to assume, but I thought that would be your answer. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) This opportunity came to me big, as I mentioned, Professor Zoda, she and I had collaborated on scientific projects for a number of years, and we continued to stay in touch. I would reach out to her when I was starting new projects or kind of maybe shifting a focus of my work just to check in. So to learn what she was doing, she could see what I was doing, see if there's opportunities to collaborate or work together or leverage each other's work. That's I love it when that happens, when I'm working on something and I, I talk to someone and say, oh, actually, like, I just I just did something really, re- really related to that. And it's wonderful to make those connections. So, you know, just continue to nurture that relationship. And, you know, as I mentioned, she founded this Agents of Change program. I had been running for a couple of years and then she really had a desire and the, the fellows had expressed a desire as well to understand more like how their science can be more impactful to making policy change. And that's when she spoke to me about coming in and joining the leadership team and bringing this element more to the program. And, you know, I'll just mention too, NRDC's science office is helping to support this collaboration. So I, I really appreciate that NRDC is, is investing in this. Yeah, that's great. Sounds like really great fit for you and a really good alignment there. We have run out of time. This went by really fast. <laughs> but before I let you go, is there anything else that you might want to talk about that I didn't touch on? I think the last thing I'll say is that oftentimes the issues that we work on climate change or plastics pollution can seem quite overwhelming. And it's hard sometimes not to have like climate grief or feel powerless in in the face of these really big systemic problems. And that it's people working together and just having a passion for, for making change and not giving up is what actually works. We've seen it work. We've seen such big progress. Even, you know, the U.S. has a really long way to go, but we just had the most historic investments in climate policy that we've ever seen in in the U.S. So it's really important to kind of take draw on your colleagues, your network, um, that support, and remember that even though these things are overwhelming, that it's the work that we're all doing together that's going to solve these problems. Awesome. Appreciate that so much. Perfect ending messages. And finally, where can people get in touch with you if they'd like to chat more? Yes, but people should feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. If you search my name and NRDC, it should come right up. So please feel free to connect with me and message me there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bina. And we really appreciate being here. Thank you, Laura. That's our show. Thank you, Vina, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you, everybody. Bye.